the syndicates that target Australia have a business model. Disrupting the crime syndicates keen to supply a drug-hungry Australian public has been a big part of Des Appleby's long police career. Now stationed in the Australian consulate in Hong Kong, Des knows that some of the bosses of these syndicates live and work close by. But it's one thing to know, and another to get enough direct evidence to bring down the puppeteers. These people have many layers of protection, including what are effectively human shields. And part of that business model is to deploy people to Australia to work in small groups, what we call um, shore parties. So they're people deliberately sent to Australia who have a background in crime or owe money to the syndicates or to have gambling debts, for example, or um, drug problems themselves. But they The syndicates do their homework on these guys. And then the other side of it is the triads that have sent them or the organised crime figures behind these enterprises, one of the things they do is when they're recruited, they go around and see where they live. And it's to check to see whether they're an undercover operative or saying who they are. And so they're known and they, they check where their family is. And that then ensures that they know that the people offshore know where their family lives. So it's, it's really of no benefit to them working with the authorities. Des is talking about the men we know as Teng, Lee and Lam. Last episode, we heard how they got to Australia and how the police managed to install a listening device into their rental van. Federal Police Detective Celeste Johnson was involved in the huge surveillance effort that followed. So the monitoring of live people requires constant surveillance, um, monitoring and consistent follow-up inquiries based on, on their activities. Teng, Lee and Lam were the shore party, whose job it was to collect the heroin brought ashore from the Pong Sioux and pass it on to the Australian-based customer. It's a job that carries a fair bit of stress. And they, they get a few, few dollars, and it's only a few dollars. It's certainly not worth it. For the risk they take, they're the ones, they're the fall guys. So they call them soldiers. So the syndicate heads talk about them as soldiers. So uh, my, uh, my soldiers got arrested, that, those sort of comments we often hear. Commanding these soldiers are the crime bosses of Macau, Hong Kong and Bangkok. So the syndicate heads are very rich people and they uh, then task out the individual projects to what we would describe as controllers, so a project manager. So you'll have a project manager that, that has uh, an idea about how to bring drugs to a, you know, pick Australia and has an avenue in. For the syndicate at the centre of our story, their way in was aboard a North Korean ship called Pong Su. I started with the AFP in November 1999. By the time that this job started, I was a team member within the Avian Strike Force, which was the team that this job was allocated to. Celeste is energetic, engaging and knows every inch of her brief. It was a drugs initiative. It was introduced by then Prime Minister John Howard, um, which was a strategy focused on the tough on drugs policy. Our tough on drugs program is the largest single initiative ever undertaken in this country to fight the drug problem. So the Avian Strike Force was established basically to target major organised crime involving 
major drug trafficking. It's the AFP. How do they name their operations? I've always wondered that. You put a request through our system and it's just automatically generated system that just plucks it out of nowhere, basically, and it just goes alphabetically. At the time, with avian jobs, it tended to be bird-related references. For some reason, the Pongsu case got codenamed Operation Sorbet. The task of following Teng, Lee and Lam around Melbourne, Geelong and Lawn fell to Des and Celeste's squad. But Des was a bit late to the job. I wasn't there on the first day. I was actually um, up on the Murrumbidgee River with uh, a group of mates fishing and I was outside mobile phone range, happily outside mobile phone range. So I was driving back to Victoria um, on the Friday and as I hit the towers, the phone lit up like a Christmas tree. And I thought, ooh, what's going on? The core team was probably... 12 to 15, um, as in investigators and intelligence. Plus there was a dedicated surveillance team, which would have been probably another seven. When things start to identify themselves as, you know, this is, this is it, it's going to happen, then it's just go, go, go. Hey, is it possible this guy is from a rental company? Can they plant that kind of thing to listen in on us? Is this possible? What do you reckon? Teng was worried the van might be bugged. So, to the amusement of the listening police, he asked his boss, Lee. Something like that is happening. Something's been put in your car to listen to us talking. Do you know how serious that is? Even if you want it, it's an international thing. It's something only the FBI can do. What evidence would you have that you're an international drug trafficker? Are you inside or outside jail right now? Well, look, I I've, if, have not ever experienced that kind of conversation before or since, so yes, <laughs> it still does give us uh, a bit of entertainment. Uh, we were laughing about that and that was good for us to hear that because, you know, it gives us an indication that they're, they're up to something really good. Remember, at this point... Des, Celeste and the rest of their strike force team didn't know that a big ship was on her way. They were just hoping they were onto something and that the shore party wouldn't cotton onto them. Lee's scepticism about being bugged was a good sign. It also is good for us when they underestimate the capabilities of Australian law enforcement. Despite what he told Tang about the FBI, Lee was still taking elaborate precautions. The phone could be tapped. You need to be really careful with these things. The phone might be tapped, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Lee knew that technology existed for police to listen to conversations through a phone, even if it was switched off. Even if you turn off the phone, it still receives it. Battery is still in there. Doesn't matter. If your SIM card is in the phone, the phone still has power in it, even if you take the battery out. Best thing is to take out the SIM card, take out the battery. They're rotating sims, what we call rotating sims. So they're getting phones in false names and then continually changing the handset, the, the sim card, all designed to basically avoid interception by law enforcement wherever they go. Mobile phone records show Lee, Teng and Lam made many calls to Macau, Bangkok, Malaysia, China and Cambodia in the days leading up to the Pongsu's arrival at Boggoli Creek. Your call could not be connected. 
Please check the number and try again. While the people on the other end of most of those calls have never been identified, the records highlight just how much planning goes into a 150 kilogram heroin importation. The Federal Police made a chart on a huge piece of paper to track 75 different phone numbers linked to the heroin shipment. Lee, Teng and Lam had a series of prepaid disposable burner phones. They registered them using false names like Andy Tan, Tony Liu, Terry Lam and John Thompson. For the police tailing Lee and Teng, much of their time was taken up watching the pair smoke cigarettes. Lee was taller and younger than Teng. He had more expensive clothes and a better haircut. Teng was small, aged 45. He usually wore a kind of daggy, dark-coloured fishing vest and often looked anxious. Perhaps Lee's swagger came from his close connection to high-level drug traffickers in Asia and the privileged upbringing that this provided him. The way my brother and I do things is different. First of all, we're related. He doesn't want to see me dead. If he reckons something is dangerous, he'll say, hey, don't do this job. At worst, we won't get the money. We have other paths, right? We can't die. I can make one call and explain to my brother. If there's no solution, the worst that can happen is I'll go back. Nothing to worry about. Teng was in a very different situation. He was in Australia to pay off a gambling debt. Back in Malaysia, he had a young child, a wife and elderly parents. They actually spoke in maybe, I think it was four or five different Asian languages and they, they flicked between them. Did you know it was deliberate? No, I think that's just, these guys don't know each other. They're from different parts of the world. I think one was from Malaysia, one was from Singapore. So they, they roll into different languages, um, dialects. It's just, just them reaching for words to describe things and they just, it's enormously frustrating because um, you've got to get, sometimes got to get interpreters for different, yeah. different languages. This meant that getting the conversations translated could take a while. Even so, it was becoming clear that Lee knew a fair bit about the nuts and bolts of drug trafficking, as well as the risks. There are really people who have had their phone tapped. I've seen it. I believe it. Why? Not because someone told me. I saw it with my own eyes. This happened to someone in England. There was nothing else. If there was, he would have been fucked. It would have been at least 20, 30 years, I tell you. There was nothing else. He did five years. No workers were caught, and no one gave evidence against him, so he only did five years. The listening device in the Tarago was recording Lee and Teng, dropping vital clues. This much stuff, can they carry it? There's five, six bags, six bags, each bag around. But you need to know how heavy they are. They're this big. What happens if each bag is 50 kilos? Someone needs to help him. Do you understand? He should know the time. If he has told you the location, he should roughly know oh, Of course, he should know that. Once they get to the shore from the outside, they'll ferry it using a speedboat. It'll definitely be something like that. Mm. 
These conversations were recorded in the 48 hours leading up to the arrival of the Pong Su on April 15, 2003. The creaking old ship, carrying 32 men and six bags of heroin, was still making her way through the Southern Ocean, concealed by the horizon. It was the furthest the Pong Su, Master Sun, or anyone else on board had been away from home. Back in the Tarago, Lee and Teng still took care while talking, just in case somebody was listening. They spoke in code. Will they have time to wait for you, the delivery people? I told them not to. Don't have to wait there. Go straight down there. The man we call, um... Peter. Peter was their code name for Lamb. We have to take it tomorrow. We definitely have to take it tomorrow. Take the girlfriend over there, ask him to lead the way. Right up to the fishing village. To the fishing village. The fishing village was Lawn, and the so-called girlfriend was the enormous stash of heroin still on board the Pong Su. There was also someone they called Charlie, although that certainly wasn't the right name either. Charlie was the person they were to give the drugs to. This Charlie, he's a local here? I don't know either. Does Charlie have a car? Yes, he does. He does? Okay, so the stuff's in Peter's car, the girlfriend, needs to go in Charlie's car. The bug in the car was telling police another important thing. Lee was having his doubts about the third member of the shore party, Lamb. Since Lee's arrival, Lamb had been laying low in Melbourne, spending most of his time at the casino. His personality is like, is really odd. Even I find it difficult to be around him. He's so hard to get along with. His temper is always like this. He's so eccentric. Too eccentric. A word from our sponsor. Meals come second, to be honest. But, um, Celeste, Des and the rest of their team had by now been on full alert for what felt like a long time. You are running on adrenaline and you are... Constant, like you, you want you want to see the result. So that core team, we probably didn't go home for more than a couple of hours at a time for probably three weeks. The 24-hour surveillance, the lack of sleep, the tension were all taking a toll, as was the menu. Because it was over Easter at that time, there was nothing really open in the, in the city and... One of, the, one of the investigators, her mum was <laughs> worried about us all and she brought in a huge hamper of Easter eggs and we survived on that for days on end and then the boss here one day came in and the, the only thing that was open was a 7-Eleven so he just brought in chips and ice creams and goodness knows what and that's what we survived on. 30 unknown miles, probably um, 30 to 35, it's about below six foot. So I'm running what we would describe as a, a mobile command post. So I'm in a car, got you know obviously phones and radios, and I'm being driven around, and we're moving to whatever these guys do. So essentially, we're just following behind them and trying to work out what they're doing. But the the intel coming from the car and from the other things is not live, so it's coming to me uh, after they've interpreted it, after they've understood it and then they've assessed it as being information worthy to pass to me. 
so that it might improve my situational awareness. So we, how do we manage that? We have that, like uh, an investigations group work in a major incident room in our office and that's the sort of central point for all information. So it's all processed there and then sent out to the people out in the field. The surveillance team shadowing Lee and Teng had to be careful. The pair were trying to avoid being followed, doubling back on themselves and changing their route. They were doing a lot of backflips, a lot of looking, which is normal to us, so you see people do that. But there's also probably an element of people being lost. They were also very aware of CCTV cameras. I hope you look. If there's a camera around when you do the transaction, then you have a death wish. Let's drive around a few more times and check it out for you. Twenty-four hours after Lee's CCTV warning, Master Songman Sun steered the Pong Su a hard left and came in close to the Great Ocean Road shoreline. This was around 1pm on the afternoon of April 15, 2003. It would be another eight hours or so before Des, Celeste and the rest of the police crew even knew the Pong Su was there. But for coastal locals like Dickie Davies, the Pong Su caused an immediate stir. See, Greeny, me mate, lives further down at Wye River. Boggley's just before Wye River. Well, they see the ship hung around. The Wye River Dickie's talking about is a much smaller town than Lawn. It's 16 kilometres further down the Great Ocean Road. Boggley Creek, the place we heard about in an earlier episode as the location for the heroin importation, is between Lawn and Wye River. Drinkers and diners in Wye River's Rookery Nook pub got a close-up look at the Pong Su around lunchtime on April 15. The bar supervisor later told police he saw a huge cargo ship with two cranes on its deck, a red bottom and a black top, very close to the shore. Dickie told us in an earlier episode how he saw the ship closer to lawn later that same afternoon. This was because Master Sun was taking his ship up and down the coast looking for Boggley Creek, the deserted rendezvous point for the heroin to be handed on in the dead of night. Dickie still can't get his head around why they settled on Boggley Creek without at least enlisting some local knowledge. To me, there's a quite an uh, easy little patch to get to and get in, but for somebody that never come to the country, you'd be dreaming. You would... You. I know the area and surf the area. It, there's a really big pool as big as that beer garden. And there's a nice little, it gets calm and if you go to the right track, you can come around and come up at a little beach. But they wouldn't know that. No way, no. Be like me landing on the freaking Philippines somewhere, wouldn't it, you know? While local residents couldn't fail to notice the huge ship so close to land, the crew on board the Pong Su were oblivious to the attention they were attracting. April 15 is an important day for North Koreans. It's called Day of the Sun and commemorates the birthday of the nation's founder, Kim Il-sung. In other parts of the world, 
The Day of the Sun provokes protests over the brutalities of the Kim family regime. To celebrate the Day of the Sun, the Pongsu crew were excused from duties for a few hours to enjoy a special lunch and a little booze. Still on board were the two men picked up weeks earlier at Sister Island, close to the Pongsu's home port of Nampo in North Korea. By the next morning, one would be dead and one would be stranded. But for now, there was a hiatus of sorts. Back on land, Lee and Teng spent their early part of April 15 in Geelong, while the third member of the shore party, Lamb, passed the time in Melbourne, most likely at the casino. As ever, the police were watching and listening, and what they were hearing was very interesting. It suggested something was imminent. But Lee and Teng continued to drive around like tourists, stopping in the scenic coastal towns on the way to Lawn. Eventually, later in the afternoon, the two of them ended up back at Crown Casino in Melbourne. They felt less conspicuous there. Here, there's more tourists. We won't stand out because we're Chinese. We look natural, get it? Us Chinese, we like casinos. Chinese people like to gamble. It looked as though Lee and Teng had decided to spend the night in their hotel rooms at the casino. Des decided to seize the moment. It was dark and he and his team were hungry. Uh, and we've been eating a lot of, let's say, food on the road, so a lot of junk food. I decided as the, as the field commander that we were all going to go and have a proper restaurant meal. And so we, we actually booked into a French restaurant in Geelong and then uh, we were just getting ready and uh, next thing you know, it was standby, standby from our surveillance and, and they're on the move. And they, they were motoring and they, they did a, a, a series of turns and lost the violence. We knew they were going to do something. We just didn't know when or where. Coming up on the last voyage of the Pong Su. Why should I go to the beach with him? He's scared of dying. A trip to the beach is the most dangerous one. Fuck. And we love Celeste because she's lucky. And I'm a big believer in luck. I live next door to um, Macau, so you've got to be a big believer in luck here. You know, Murphy's Law, what could go wrong did go wrong and it was a catastrophe. Received a phone call from the homicide squad to say that a body had been found uh, on the Great Ocean Road in mysterious circumstances. Just a quick note here for anyone wondering why we're calling the master by his last name, Sun, and not his first, Song, as his convention. The simple reason is to avoid confusion with so many other characters with the same or very similar names. The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is brought to you by the newsrooms of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. To read more and to watch the videos referenced in this episode, head to our websites. While you're there, why not take out a subscription to help power independent Australian journalism and productions like this podcast? If you're enjoying this series, leave a review on iTunes and recommend us to a friend. The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is reported by Richard Baker. Field recording and audio editing by executive producer Rachel Dexter. Narrative consultant is Kate Cole-Adams. Siobhan McHugh is consulting producer. Music and composition by Vicky Hansen. Sound design and mixing by John Greenfield. And Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Thanks to our cast of actors. Chi Kwan Lee is played by Andy Song. Kyung Fa Teng is played by Anthony Ting. And Yao Kim Lam is played by Jason Chong. 
Casting by Catapult Casting. Script translations by Yan Zhuang. Additional audio from Reuters, Associated Press and the Australian Liberal Party. The reading you heard at the start of this episode was an excerpt from The Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare. Read by Jason Chong. 